The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. There are some people that make their work just another thing they have to do. And there are those that make their work something that they want to do. Welcome to Working on Purpose with your host, Elise Cortez. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration from those people who have found deeper meaning and personal connection to their work life. It's beyond 9 to 5. It's Working on Purpose. Now, here is your host, Elise Cortez. Welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Elise Cortez, joining you from Dallas, Texas, my home base. As you know, if you've been tuning in now, you know that I'm obsessed with the world of work and how we experience it. We spend at least a third of our lives at work, so I want to help people find a more meaningful connection to the work that they do. I'm also really intrigued with identity, especially in relation to how it is affected or informed by the work that we do. Knowing who we are and being able to express ourselves in life and at work are profoundly important aspects of the human experience. So with this in mind, I recruited this week's guest and originally became acquainted with her because she was featured on the cover of September's HR magazine with an article titled, The New Face of Diversity, Transgender Employee Policies Are Getting Support. Are You Ready? I think this topic is incredibly important to understand and support and certainly represents the intersection of meaning and work and identity. And so I reached out to invite this expert onto the program. With us this week is Dr. Jillian Weiss, who joins us today from New York City. She is a professor of law and society at Ramapo College of New Jersey and provides legal representation to transgender employees in cases involving gender identity and gender expression discrimination. She has authored numerous academic publications and presentations and is the author of a book titled Transgender Workplace Diversity, Policy Tools, Training Issues, and Communication Strategies for HR and Legal Professionals. Dr. Weiss, it is wonderful to have you with us today. Welcome to the Working on Purpose show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, before we get into all the amazing work that you're doing, and honestly, it's just hard to keep up with you, all the things that you're up to, I do want to understand a bit about your own journey of transition here. Can you share with us a little bit about what you've gone through and maybe where it all began? Sure. Uh, I knew since a very young age that there was something different about me, but of course, I didn't have words at that very young age. As I got older, I began to realize that I uh, felt more like a girl than I did a boy, uh, but I grew up uh, very religious, and uh, also in the uh, 1960s, uh, there was not much information on this, and so I really kept it to myself and uh, felt that I was sick and a freak. Um, you know, as I got older, I learned more about these issues, uh, but hoped that it would just go away, because uh, in addition to those concerns, it was also very inconvenient in terms of the life course that I thought that I would have. But at a certain point in my life, um, I realized that I, I had to deal with these issues because I began to think that it would be better if I was not here. Uh, and that concerned me a great deal. I consulted uh, medical professionals and went to support groups and learned about these issues and decided that I did need to transition. Um, and I did that in my 30s. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, that was some time ago, <laughs> a long time ago at this point, I guess, uh, 17 years or so. 
And um, my life has been, uh, you know, really wonderful since then. And, uh, you know, some difficulties, of course, but uh, things are good now. Mm. Well, I really, really applaud the journey that you've been on, Dr. Weiss. It's really incredible and inspiring, and I can't even begin to imagine what you've gone through and the questions you've asked yourself. So I I really appreciate you coming on and sharing and talking about what I think is really important for people to understand here in today's, today's world and the workplace. Um, and so speaking of that, I know from reading in the September issue of the HR magazine that w- when you were working in 1998 um, at a firm in, in New York City that you had confided in your assistant that you were considering transitioning genders, at which point you promptly found yourself without gainful employment, <laughs> which is amazing and remarkable to me. But can you share a little bit about us about those years? You mentioned that you were definitely underemployed, if not somewhat unemployed. What was that like and how long did it last? Well, after I was released from uh, the, the firm that I'd been working for at the end of 1997, it was a few weeks before mm. Christmas of okay. 1997, um, I realized that it was the time for me to actually transition and that I would uh, need to live in the world as Jillian and to go get employment uh, as myself and so on. Um, and I applied to a number of different firms, um, but unfortunately... Uh, one of the difficulties I had was that my former, uh, one of my earlier employers, um, who would probably be consulted by anybody looking at my resume, um, felt very constrained uh, in regard to how they would give references, and I had contacted them and requested that they, um, you know, list my employment, uh, uh, you know, list my new name and, um, you know, use appropriate pronouns, and at that time they did not feel comfortable. And as a matter of fact, I had a, um, a company contact them, and uh, they, they referred to me as it during the process <laughs> of uh, releasing the information. So, um, you know, wow. for probably that and other reasons, uh, I was not able to find employment uh, in a law firm. Um, and so I realized that I would need to get some employment or else I was going to be on the street as indeed some of my newfound friends in the transgender community were uh, themselves on the street and looking for a place to lay their heads and where the next meal was coming from. So I realized that I would be able to get a job as a secretary, most likely. I left off you know, the references to my law degree uh, from my resume, and uh, at that time, uh, there was, uh, the business was really hot and you know, anybody they could get to work as a legal secretary, and I could spell affidavit and type 80 words a minute. So they said, sit down and get to work. And, uh, you know, of course, I was working for less than half of what I'd been making before, but I was very happy to have the work, and it was a wonderful place to to work. And I worked there for a couple of years um, and then felt that I would like to uh, move on. I did actually get another job as an attorney, um, at, you know, during that two-year period, I worked for the law firm as a secretary. I was kind of going through my transition, and by the end of that period, I, I really looked uh, quite unambiguously female, which, you know, had not been the case at the beginning of the transition. Um, and so I was able to get a, a job at a, a law firm, but quickly realized that I would much prefer to go into teaching, uh, which I had always wanted to do. Um, and so I went back to school and got a Ph.D., and then I've been teaching at Ramapo College for the past uh, 11 years. Ramapo, okay. That's how you say that, Ramapo. Ramapo. Well, so I was wondering about that, Dr. Wise. So as you were going through your transition, you were also going back to school. Is that right? Is that, uh, is that what happened? Yes. 
Okay. I think that's fair to say. I mean, it was about two years in, but then I, I went back to school at that point, yes. Okay, because I did want to understand why you got a PhD after that. So you were, you were intrigued with the idea of teaching. So why teaching? Why is that important? Well, I had always wanted to teach. Um, and also I noticed that, um, you know, uh, being a, a female attorney was a very different relationship with my employers than being a male attorney. You know, being a male attorney... Uh, I think there was a certain expectation of a certain kind of strong personality being needed uh, as part of the job, whereas, um, you know, and, and perhaps it was just this employer, but in any event, um, I found that my work was being uh, torn to bits, and, you know, all of a sudden my writing was no good, even though I had been considered a very strong writer previously and had published a number of law review articles and, you know, the things and everything I did was wrong and so on. And it was just, it was much, it was not to my liking. Um, and I had always wanted to teach. Actually, before I went to law school, I had planned to uh, to teach, uh, get a teaching uh, degree and teach in uh, high school. But my parents were very much against the idea. And so they said, well, if you go to law school, we will support you. If not, you're on your own. So I said, okay, I guess I'm going to law school. Uh, and I did. And actually, I loved it. As soon as I got in, I realized that it was just uh, how much I enjoyed it. Um, and did did quite well, but nonetheless. So when it many years later it came to the question of well, what do I do now? I thought again of teaching. I thought of teaching in law school, where I'd probably not require a PhD. Uh, but at that time, the uh, market for law professors in law schools was not great, and uh, in order to teach undergraduate, I would most likely need a PhD. So I went off to Boston. I uh, enrolled at Northeastern University. They gave me a full scholarship, and I completed that PhD in three years. Wow. It took me six years to do mine. See, you're an overachiever. <laughs> I, I was wondering, I mean, that's it's quite a fascinating journey. And, and you gave me the question as to why law, and I want to say more about that in just a second. But what was your dissertation? What did you write on for that? Well, the dissertation was on transgender uh, human resources policies. At that time, there were about uh, 20 or 30 companies that had uh, policies saying they would not discriminate based on gender identity. And the question that I asked was, well, why would you have such a policy? There's no law requiring you to have it. You are not even necessarily sure what transgender means, and you're not sure whether you have any transgender employees when I ask, but nonetheless, you've gone ahead and, and, and you know, taken on these policies, and I was curious as to, to why. Mm, mm. Very interesting, and also one other thing that you said earlier about the experience. I think it's interesting that you had such a profoundly different experience as a female attorney versus a male attorney and how you were treated. That's... I can't be super surprised, but I am surprised, I guess, somewhat by that. Well, also, this was, you know, a long time ago at this point. Uh, so hopefully society has moved forward since then. <laughs> Let us hope. We're, we're doing our part to help educate and enlighten them anyway. Um, so the law piece, I was interested in that. I, uh, because I, I care so much about the world of work, people get into what they do, how they experience it, what does it mean to them and who they are. I was curious about why law. So it sounds like you didn't pick it, your parents did, but you, you came to like it. So what did you like about it in the beginning? Well, it's, it's very specific and exacting. I mean, words mean a specific thing. Of course, I have come to realize through the course of practice that words are an incredibly ambiguous thing and that it's a very, very difficult thing to nail them down, but that's kind of what the job is, um, and to nail it down in, in favor of your client, obviously. And, uh, 
you know, I just found it fascinating that here was a whole series of rules. And by the way, it uh, really reminded me of my religious upbringing. I'm Jewish, and so I studied the Talmud, which is the book of the oral law written around the verses of the Bible to explain what the Jewish people should or should not be doing in any particular thing. I mean, it's 60 volumes in Aramaic written in approximately somewhere around 250 B.C. Uh, so... You know, it's it's quite a fascinating study, but it's law, essentially. And it's like, well, we look at a verse in the Bible, and it says, you know, the following words, so we can, what can we learn from this? And, well, we can take the following five or ten or fifteen things from this. And so I enjoyed that very much as a young person. And then uh, going to law school is pretty much exactly the same thing. Um, and, you know, I was really fascinated by the way in which the uh, – specific laws related to the cases and the way that they were interpreted, and, um, and also had wonderful, wonderful professors at Seton Hall Law School, um, which interestingly is a, is a Catholic institution, a Jesuit institution, and I was very well accepted there and also very well, um, you know, appreciated the, the learning that I received from my professors. Mm. I'm glad I asked that question. That's really fascinating to me. I would have never gotten there on my own had you not queued that up. I have heard other attorneys talk about the love of the written language or even the verbal language, how it's spoken. But I haven't heard anybody connected over to their, their religious faith like you just did there. Gorgeous. Thank you. Um, all right. So I do want to talk about your work here. I know that you focus on representing transgender employees, and that is your your practice, which I really appreciate and admire. But I want to help. I want to help really shed light on the work that you do. Can you help us understand what kind of situations do you see? What are you working with? Sure. Well, I mean, essentially, there's of course many different types of situations, but I could probably put them in two categories. One is harassment on the job, where um, you know, people either come forward and say, I am transitioning, um, or they come onto the job having already transitioned, and then for some reason or another, somebody may know or find out or suspect, and then, you know, nasty things are said. And, um, you know, that is a very difficult situation, both for the employee, obviously, but also for the employer in trying to figure out, you know, how do we address this situation and, and try to stop this from happening. Sometimes it can be quite subtle. And then the other type of situation is where someone is actually uh, terminated or demoted or uh, some other uh, negative action is taken and, you know, the question is raised, is this because I'm transgender? And, um, you know, that can be difficult to kind of get to the heart of that and figure it out. And most people are aware enough nowadays that you don't say to someone, well, you're fired because you're transgender, just like you wouldn't say you're fired because of your race or sex or, um, you know, religion or any other category that may be listed. So, um, you know, the question becomes, how do we figure out what happened? And, of course, you have to look for these various subtle clues. And, uh, you know, what did the decision makers say in uh, previous times? Um, you know, what did they do in response to complaints about coworker harassment? Um, you know, what kinds of accommodations were made for the transgender employee in terms of uh, restrooms and insurance policies and, uh, uh, dealing with the customers or clients and so on. Um, and so you look at all these different types of scenarios to see, do we think that there is or is not a likelihood of discrimination here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Wow, it sounds like an awful lot to, to, to take in to take into account and to be able to address. And I really, again, appreciate that work. Um, how much do you? How much of your time do you think you spend practicing law versus teaching? I was just curious because you've got two very distinct careers. What's the percentage? Do you think? Right. Well, much more of my time is spent teaching. Um, that's my main job and the one that really keeps me the most busy. This is a side practice, and uh, you know, I just uh, took on a couple of cases. I guess starting in 2011. Or so, and then you know, I had been getting some calls from people, and I would say, "Well, I'm sorry, I don't practice. I can't help." Uh, but then I began to take on a few of these cases, and then I was able to, uh, through you know, kind of growing the business and having some success with some cases, able to hire a full-time uh, attorney associate who works with me. And so he, uh, unfortunately, has the uh, job of spending most of his time dealing with all these cases, and I am you know supervising and providing assistance as needed. Got it. Got it. That's, that's helpful. Thank you. I was wondering how you juggled all those balls. Now it makes a little bit more sense. Well, believe it or not, it's already time for our first break. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. We've been on the air with Dr. Jillian Weiss, who is a professor of law and society at Ramapo College of New Jersey. Her research area is gender identity and law. She's authored numerous articles and a book called Transgender Workplace Diversity, Policy Tools, Training Issues, and Communication Strategies for HR and the Legal Professionals. We've been talking about really her own journey of transitioning here and her work today as, an, as a professor and an attorney. After the break, we want to learn more about what it's, what's it actually like for a transitioning employee. What do they go through? Stay with us. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Tune in to Lou Augusta's A Rumor of Empathy. Our show is committed to providing a generous listening. Empathy. Through conversations with our guests and you. Every issue deserves to be heard and thought out empathically. When it is properly sorted out, it becomes a solution rather than a problem. In Lou's program, his goal is to help you through conversations, which in turn can help your relationships and other aspects of your life. A Rumor of Empathy can be heard live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Where can you find a forum to help you make the best decisions in your everyday life? Listen for An Hour of Empowerment with Charles Haywood Ellis III. Each week, the program will cover a wide variety of topics you've asked about, from self-improvement to finances and matters as varied as education and urban violence. An Hour of Empowerment can be heard live every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Be sure to stop by every week. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, 
back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose show. We're here with Dr. Jillian Weiss, who provides legal representation to transgender employees in cases involving gender identity and gender expression discrimination. She's also the chair of the annual Transgender Law Symposium. She joins us today from New York City. I'm your host, Elise Cortez. Let's pick up where we left off. We were talking a bit about the work that you that you do uh, as an attorney and also as a professor, of course. But I'm also really curious, because I know when we spoke by phone, um, before we decided to do this this radio show, that you've also done some work consulting with private and public companies regarding gender identity policy and employee gender transitions. And it seems to me that you'd be doing more preventative consulting work instead of post-incident legal work if companies were more open to the former. Your thoughts? Yes, well, that is true. Um, and as a matter of fact, I had put some effort into trying to provide such services, and I was successful in providing services to a number of different organizations, and I've worked with Harvard University and Boeing and KPMG and a few others. Um, But in general, I would say that most companies are not focusing on this and have not really thought about uh, steps they might need to to take. Uh, They may not know that they have transgender employees. Uh, They may feel the number is very small or that, uh, you know, well, all we have to do is just make sure we're nice to them, and, and that's really all that needs to be done. Uh, There's nothing on fire uh, at most companies that says, oh, you know, let's make sure we're ready for this. I mean, the fact is that once somebody comes into your office and says, I need to talk to you, it is already too late to really start planning for it in a timely fashion because there are a dozen things that you need to do well at once. Um, And so I found that, um, you know, the desire of companies to engage me to work on uh, preventative consulting was really very small and... uh, felt that uh, working through the courts uh, with employees who are experiencing trouble would be a more fruitful way of uh, gaining the attention that this issue required. Mm. I have to say, of course, I, I, I find that sad, but I do, I do understand. Um, so, well, let's, let's get into talking about the actual transitioning employee. Um, what's necessary for transgender employees to be productive, especially during their transition process? Well, there's a lot of things to think about um, in terms of, you know, what is it that a transitioning employee will need? And, um, you know, I have put together a draft transition plan um, in my book and, um, you know, use that when I am looking for uh, what is it that companies need to think about. Um, You know, first of all, you need to think about, you know, what is the timeline? Um, you know, when is this going to happen? Because somebody may walk in and say, well, you know, I'm planning on transitioning or I'm thinking of transitioning, uh, but, you know, I'm not thinking of doing it for six months or a year or I'm not even sure when. Or they may say, I'm doing this tomorrow. Uh, so that's one thing you want to get clear about as soon as possible. Uh, second is getting clear about, you know, what, what is the dress code here? Uh, different workplaces have different dress codes. Many uh, workplaces now have kind of uniform dress codes where there's not a specific um, you know, difference between male and female, but there may be in some companies, and some companies may uh, need people to wear certain kinds of safety gear or other uniforms and so on, so you need to kind of get that figured out. Um, also figuring out, well, what resources do we have available to us? Is there a company um, EAP? Is there an affinity group? Um, is there some sort of diversity council who handles uh, issues of needing leave for medical uh, procedures, um, who handles insurance benefits and so on. So figuring out what are our resources. 
Um, you also have to think about, you know, ID changes on badges and uh, nameplates and cards and uh, computer systems, telephones, and so on. There may be security clearance issues. Um, there may be facilities usage questions about, well, how do we handle restrooms in this particular environment? Maybe different in uh, different types of environments. Um, I will say that the uh, United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has issued uh, decisions indicating that you must give gender-appropriate uh, restroom facilities to a transgender employee. Um, and, you know, there's a number of other things, but I think that's kind of a good uh, kind of overview of some of the types of things that you need to think about. Okay. That's really, that that's very helpful. I mean, I've spent the last 17 years of my life in human capital and really more beginning on the recruiting side than going into learning development, but not having, I don't have obviously any background in law and I haven't been part of anything to help transgender employees into the workplace. And so this is very fascinating for me. And again, I hope that the reason I wanted to have you on the show is I want to help educate about, about this topic and help people be prepared um, and certainly companies as well as other employees who encounter the, the transgender person. I think it's just really important. Um, any other tools that companies need to equip their transition employee? Anything else, other tools, other aspects you need to consider? Yes. I think that thinking about training for upper management and human resources is essential mm. because yep. there's a lot of things to think about from specifically an HR and management perspective. I think it's also important to think about how do we notify coworkers and I think that doing it by email is probably not uh, usually the best method, although in some far-flung enterprises it's sometimes necessary. But I think, you know, having a meeting with a small number of employees, um, with somebody who understands uh, how to bring forward these issues, and to show that there is upper management support and to address questions that people may have. You know, well, what should I call you now? Can I, what kind of questions can I ask you? Uh, you know, what about concerns that I may have about, you know, personal beliefs and so on? Uh, that's a very important issue, that kind of coworker training. Um, although training is not a term I prefer to use with regard to this, it's really um, advising as to policies that the company already has in place about uh, non- non-discrimination and non-harassment, just, you know, in a slightly different context. Um, so I think that, you know, that those types of trainings, management, HR, Coworkers, and then of course, you know, depending on the environment, clients, uh, customers, um, possibly vendors, uh, maybe guests in some situations. Uh, so these all need to be considered. Hmm. Hmm. Well, that makes a lot of sense. In fact, hopefully, maybe at some point, since I am in the field of training and development, maybe I'll get to be on the point where I get to help companies with that at some point. Who knows? But um, mm. very, very good to understand that. Um, I do want to get into, into the, really the specifics of, of the actual community itself, if we can, Dr. Weiss. I w- help us understand more about the actual transgender and LGBT community. In terms of statistics, how many people consider themselves transgendered? Well, the Williams Institute, which does um, statistical studies on the LGBT community, has estimated that there's somewhere between 700,000 and a million transgender people in the United States today. Um, so that is a fairly small percentage of the 300-something million that we have in the country today, but it's still a fairly large number in terms of, let's say, larger enterprises where you have thousands of employees, you can expect to have a number of transgender employees. Um, That is different, of course, from sexual orientation uh, or being gay and lesbian. That number is a much larger number, and the estimates are about 3 to 5% of the population 
uh, identify as gay or lesbian. So um, the, the gay and lesbian community is much, much larger than the transgender community, um, but nonetheless still a fair number of people. Well, and speaking of that, I mean, how is transgender different from sexual orientation? Well, sexual orientation refers to romantic partners. You know, who are you interested in having a romantic relationship with? Uh, being transgender is really inward-facing. It's how do I identify in terms of male or female? And so it does not relate to my sexual orientation. Uh, I might prefer, uh, as a romantic partner, those who are male or Conversely, those who are female or, in the case of uh, being bisexual, um, someone who is, you know, of either sex. Uh, But that's my sexual orientation, and as a transgender person, I can have any sexual orientation at all. So for myself, having transitioned from male to female, I may prefer to have romantic relationships with females um, or, you know, possibly males um, or both. So you can't assume from the fact that I am transgender what my sexual orientation is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, that really is the difference between transgender and uh, gay or lesbian, or shall we say gender identity versus sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So helpful to understand and important to understand. Uh, I can, can I just say a quick little fun story here that I think maybe helps maybe get to that somewhat and bring it to life. Uh, I was, I was uh, um, vacationing with my daughter in Oregon, Portland, outside Portland, and we'd gone to a shopping mall and... We're in a clothing store, and there was a, a tall, slender um, person who was clearly a, a guy, a man, had kind of longish hair, greenish hair, um, but was wearing a skirt and, and clearly, you know, was, was positioning herself as a, as, a, as a woman. And just lovely to chat with. She immediately noticed my shoes. I'm from Dallas. I always wear colorful shoes, loved my shoes. We started a conversation, and, and then I was getting ready to pay, and I said, uh, do you want me to pay you here? And she said, oh, no, 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 I'm just the computer girl. You have to pay that person over there. And what I appreciated about that whole thing was um, everyone around her honored that she wanted to be referred to as a woman, and they did. They 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 did so. They, they said, I forget what her name was, but they said, I'm going to go help uh, whatever her name was, Katie, with the computer. She's got a couple questions for me, so I'll be back. And I just really appreciated that she's clearly somewhere in that process of maybe transitioning or at least identification different from what she was born as and she was being supported at least in the workplace and I really thought that was just fantastic so a little bit of good stuff out there hopefully yes that's that's a good story and I would I would actually take it a little further and say that given that she identified as a girl and used female pronouns and so on she really is a woman and is to be um, understood as a woman um, rather than, you know, someone who's a man who's trying to be a woman or a man who wants to be a woman. She's a woman, and we, we might say she might identify as a transgender woman, but this is a woman, and I know that this is perhaps unusual or startling for a lot of people, but if we are going to respect someone's gender, then we would, you know, refer to them as they refer to themselves. And, you know, people may have obviously different opinions about that, but nonetheless, um, if we're going to follow the rule of respect, that's how we would view it. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And that's exactly what was happening, which was so nice to be able to see and and, and observe and be part of, frankly. Uh, well, let's talk about that that process of, of transition, if we can, Dr. Weiss. I mean, I'm sure that a lot of people out there have no idea what's involved. I don't either. So what are the steps? Well, there is an organization called the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, 
Um, and those are professionals in various capacities who assist transgender people in um, addressing their medical needs. And they actually have something called the Standards of Care, and you can actually look them up online. It's WPATH.org, W-P-A-T-H.org. And um, they have there their Standards of Care that kind of list you know, what are the medical requirements for providing cross-gender hormones or providing certain types of uh, surgery or other types of medical intervention? Um, and it's different for different people. Um, you know, it's not actually necessary to follow those standards of care in order to uh, transition. I mean, one could simply say, you know, uh, I am uh, transitioning and I don't need outside justification or assistance to do that, and here is how I will be referred to in my name and my pronouns and so on and so forth. Um, but in following, you know, if one is following the standards of care, generally you would uh, consult a uh, mental health professional who has an expertise in gender identity issues. And, um, you know, talking through that can be useful not only to figure out uh, where exactly one fits within the spectrum of uh, sex and or gender, um, but also to understand, well, now that I, if I have decided to undertake this process, what do I need to do? What steps do I need to take at work, at home, um, you know, with various organizations I may be associated with, my social relationships, and so on? Because it is a lot to think about. Uh, and I always recommend that people consult a therapist to think about how am I going to deal with this? Because you also have to think about, well, what, what do I do if people are not accepting or I encounter problems that could cause uh, difficulties like losing my job and so on, which could cause serious difficulties. So it's good to kind of think about this in advance and to think about, you know, what are the effects of taking uh, cross-gender hormones? You know, what will be the physical effects? What can I expect to see in myself? What can I expect uh, that others will see and, and how to deal with their reaction and so on? Um, and the standards of care also require that in order to get um, certain kinds of surgical intervention, you need to have letters from uh, therapists, from mental health professionals with expertise in this area who will say that um, it is appropriate to engage in, um, you know, surgical uh, measures that, you know, may be irreversible. Um, and there are many different kinds of uh, surgical interventions that are used. There's not like one surgery that they do. You go in and then, you know, like you walk through the door and then you come out the other side and you're, you know, completely, you know, everything's done. It's not like that. There's probably a dozen different um, medical interventions that might be used in any particular case. Um, might take a place uh, over a series of um, operations over a course of time and so on. Um, and I would say usually it probably takes a year or two to really kind of complete that process. Again, it's very individual. Um, you know, uh, some people wait a longer period of time. Uh, some people wait a shorter period of time. But that's, I think, a generalized view. You are ama amazingly crisp in your ability to deliver a an awful lot of information in a short number of words. I'm sure that that's part of your training, but it's wonderful to listen to. Thank you. You're welcome. I am a lawyer. <laughs> I know, I know there's that, but still. Uh, well, I, I, after the break, we're coming right up here for our next break, but I definitely want to be able to get into the resources piece of being able to support people. Um, but before we do that, let me go ahead and cue us up for that next place. It's time for a break. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Dr. Jillian Weiss, who is a professor of law and society at Ramapo College of New Jersey. 
Her research area is gender identity and law. She has authored numerous articles in a book called Transgender Workplace Diversity, Policy Tools, Training Issues, and Communication Strategies for HR and Legal Professionals. After the break, let's talk more about what, what kind of resources are available to help that transitioning person through their process. Stay with us. ready for a health, life, and empowerment show in one? Then be sure to listen every week for Living Well with Ann Beal. Ann takes her long-running TV show to the internet talk radio airwaves with guest experts and insight designed to help you live a healthy and successful life. By hearing from the experts and those who have found success, our goal is that you too will be motivated to do the same. Living Well with Ann Beal can be heard every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Elise Cortez is a speaker and engagement and development catalyst. She designs and delivers professional development, leadership, and engagement workshops and can bring her expertise to your organization. She will help ignite meaningful development within your workforce that will increase employee engagement, performance, and retention. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at www.elisecortez.com. She would welcome the opportunity to help get your employees working on purpose. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America empowerment. This is Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. To reach our program today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us, and welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We're here with Dr. Jillian Weiss, who provides legal representation to transgender employees in cases involving gender identity and gender expression discrimination. She is also the chair of the annual Transgender Law Symposium. She joins us today from New York City. We've been talking a little bit about what the process is to transition genders. Um, Let's pick up a bit where we left off and talk about maybe what resources might a transitioning person ideally want to have on hand before transitioning to help them prepare. Well, I would say that one thing that you need to think about is um, who can provide support through all of the ups and downs of this. And as I mentioned before, a a therapist or a mental health professional with expertise in gender identity issues can be very, very helpful in terms of addressing that. Um, certainly, you know, thinking about um, family support would be very important and how to go about um, speaking to family members and people whose support is going to be key in order to, um, you know, provide that support. 
And then uh, at work, I would think about, you know, is there someone who can be an executive champion or someone who can provide uh, those kind of services as a point person, as kind of a leader uh, in the organization who um, you can turn to because things will get difficult at some point. Um, you know, even if it's just in regard to like, oh, I put in my uh, claim for my health insurance uh, benefits and they told me, you know, no, we can't fix your arm because uh, you're transgender, which does occasionally happen as ridiculous as it might seem. So, you know, you want to have someone in the, in the organization that you can go to and say, I'm having a problem. Can you, you know, help me, point me in the right direction, you know, talk to someone who's going to kind of make this, uh, uh, fix this issue. Um, and I would say also kind of doing your reading uh, in advance. Look at uh, there are a number of books on the market that talk about transition at work, um, one of which is mine, but there's a number of other good ones as well. And um, thinking about, you know, uh, how, you know, how is this going to uh, take place? What do I want to see happen? Um, where do I anticipate uh, trouble and so on? And, um, you know, so having those different uh, resources available, you know, private a therapist, um, family uh, support, and support in the organization, and perhaps, you know, in other organizations, perhaps in churches or religious organizations or other social organizations would be very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. Well, now what occurs to me now, we've gone, let's just take it forward. A person has actually transitioned, and now we have this whole thing about documents, right? I can remember when I got married 15 years ago, just getting a, a, a new driver's license and all that which with a new name was, was something interesting. Help us understand what it's like to deal with the document change, document, documentation change process. Well, it's difficult. Um, there are a few jurisdictions of which, uh, for example, D.C. is one where you can go to the court and get a gender change order, and they will actually issue a court order saying that you are you know, hereby recognized as the following gender. Uh, most jurisdictions do not have those, um, and so what that means is you have to separately go and change your driver's license, change your Social Security, excuse me, uh, Social Security information, um, uh, your uh, I already mentioned driver's license. Oh, birth certificate is another one that you need to change. The birth certificate, of course, you have to go to the jurisdiction where you were born. They probably have different policies, uh, different information that has to be provided and so on. And also uh, passport uh, changes as well. Um, each requires generally something slightly different. Um, sometimes it requires a note from the doctor. Sometimes it doesn't. Um, and so it can take an awful lot of time and effort, and it can also be expensive. So, for example, in New Jersey, if you want to change your name through a court-ordered name process, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars to, just for the legal, for the, uh, court fee. And then, of course, if you want to get a lawyer involved, which is advisable since it's actually a fairly complicated process in New Jersey, that's going to be a few hundred dollars more at least. Um, I will note that it is not, in fact, necessary in most states to have a court order in order to use a different name. Uh, I would say in pretty much every state in the nation, uh, as long as you're not using a name for the purposes of fraud, then you're permitted to use a different name. Court-ordered process is simply to make it easier for certain kinds of um, organizations that might require it, like a bank, for example, might want to see that. But um, it, on the job, it's not actually necessary to demand and obtain a court order although some employers think that it is, so there can be uh, some difficulties with that. Um, but, you know, it can, it can take some time and effort and money to, to go through that process. 
Mm. So just thinking more specifically at the at the actual um, birth document, your actual birth certificate, does it distinguish, does it say that you were born as this person and that you are now recognized as this person? Or what is what does it look like? Depends on the jurisdiction. Some of them will actually have an amending process where it will say amended certificate and they're like, you know, it will indicate that it was amended from a previous uh, certificate. Others will just issue a new one, which supersedes the old one. Uh, some of them actually just like actually put a line through uh, the old gender and put in the new gender. So it can vary from place to place. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. That's really fascinating. Um, well, let's talk about the law itself. Oh, go ahead, Dr. Weiss. Well, I just wanted to mention there are some places that do not permit amending ever, regardless oh. of whatever medical intervention you may have had. They just say, no, we don't change them. So what do you do in that case? You try to avoid the need for a birth certificate. Oh, jeez. Wow. Wow. All right. Well, let's talk about the actual law itself. We've been going through a lot about the the actual person piece of it, but I want to come back to the law piece. What does the law say about the, the, the trans in, transgender topic, and maybe how has it changed? Well, at this point, there are approximately 19 states that have statutes prohibiting discrimination based on gender identity uh, at work. Um and there is also, of course, a federal law prohibiting sex discrimination. This uh, federal law has been interpreted by many federal courts to prohibit discrimination against transgender people. Um, early on, the courts had said, well, no, uh, sex discrimination does not apply to a transgender person because that is a change of sex, and that's different from sex itself. But um, later courts have used uh, a different analogy, which is that if someone changed their religion and an employer said, well, I don't like people who change their religion or I don't like the religion you changed to, and so therefore you're fired, clearly that would be a religious discrimination. And so courts have said the same is true of sex discrimination. And so we have two uh, circuit courts of appeals, the sixth, which covers Michigan uh, and, and that area, and uh, the 11th Circuit, uh, which covers uh, Georgia and, and that area, um, uh, though they have said clearly that uh, discrimination based on transgender uh, or transitioning is uh, sex discrimination. It's a form of sex stereotyping. Um, a number of uh, federal district courts have said so across the country, and um, the United States Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is the federal agency that addresses employment discrimination, has issued a number of opinions saying the same, and they have actually gone a bit farther and have addressed the issue of uh, using wrong genders for a person intentionally as a form of hostile work environment, failing to correct corporate records as a form of uh, hostile work environment, and also denying uh, consistent, you know, gender-appropriate restroom usage as a form of hostile work environment as well. So a lot has changed in a few years, and employers really need to get up to speed on the changes in the law. Mm, that's really good to know. That's all all new stuff to me. I didn't know any of that, so I'm glad that you brought that up. I do think it's important, as I as I said earlier on in the introduction, I I want this show to be educational and also inspirational in nature. So I think it's what you're talking about is an important part of us becoming educated as well as the employer marketplace as well. So thanks. All right. Well, so coming back, I got to come back, of course, to you being a professor. And of course, I'm hopelessly intrigued that you really wanted, you started off wanting to be a professor in the first place. And then, of course, ultimately got to come around, you know, after or in addition to the law career. 
um, it, obviously this is important work to you. So I'd love to hear more about you know what it is that you're teaching. And you've got so many articles out there. I lost count of them, which is really impressive. But tell us more about your, your teaching and the kinds of things that you're finding in the classrooms, the kinds of discussions you have, those, those kinds of things. Sure. Well, I am teaching at an undergraduate institution. It is not a law school. And so we're not teaching people to be lawyers. We're really teaching people to understand the law and to have a sufficient background so that if they choose to go to law school or if they want to go into law enforcement, they have at least a basic understanding. They know who's on the Supreme Court. They know what the Supreme Court is, et cetera. Um, and so, for example, this semester I'm teaching law and society, which is our introductory course where we try to introduce people to the basics of law and social science. We look at um, you know, anthropology and philosophy and psychology and uh, all different areas to try to give people an understanding of you know, how does the law um, interact with society and the way things uh, are, are occurring now? For example, I have a segment on law and race. We have a segment on uh, law and sex discrimination. We talk about gender and uh, those sorts of issues, um, the Equal Rights Amendment, and all these different things. And um, uh, that's, you know, our introductory course. And then I'm teaching a course on law and aging, looking at what happens over the life course and how uh, the law can address different issues that people have as they get older. Um, and so that's another course that I'm teaching. Um, you know, and I've taught courses on uh, all sorts of things, law and sexuality, for example. I've also taught courses on, um, you know, uh, law and uh, literature and, and things of that nature. So it's really kind of a quite eclectic uh, number of different types of courses, which is very interesting, keeps each semester pretty fresh and new. I think it sounds positively riveting. I, all of that sounds amazing to me. And now, mind you, this is coming from a person who has a bachelor's and a master's in liberal studies. So <laughs> I did study an awful lot of those kinds of things, minus the law part. But really, really interesting work, Dr. Weiss, really interesting. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. And and just a quick note there. I as I mentioned, I, I when I looked at, looked at your resume, I've never seen anybody with the kind of resume that you've had with so many different publications in there. I'm just overwhelmed and intrigued by that. I only have a couple under my own belt. Um, where does all the ambition and motivation come from to be able to to produce all of that? You know, I'm just excited by what I'm doing. I really, really enjoy it. And um, you know, I mean, I, I think about some of the different articles I've written. Um, you know, certainly. Some of the articles on, on transgender issues, I mean, it's pretty obvious where that's coming from. But, uh, for example, I was fascinated by the Supreme Court decision in Lawrence versus Texas, where they overruled the sodomy statute in Texas and said, basically, you cannot call it a crime to have a relationship with someone of the same sex. And I found that particularly fascinating because uh, there's no clear basis for it when you read the opinion. And if there's been, oh, I would say over 100 law review articles written by law professors trying to figure out, you know, how does this fit into the usual understanding of the law with the rational basis review versus uh, strict scrutiny and all these different sorts of things. It's sui generis. It's an animal all by itself. So it's just fascinating from a constitutional perspective. And so, you know, I just find this very interesting and and not hard to uh, write about. Clearly. And, and again, here's somebody who I'm, I, I think you, you and I have talked about this, but I've done some work around meaning and work in relation to identity, and I'm working on my first book. Um, it feels like it's taking forever and a lifetime to finish. Um, what is but it? Let, <laughs> I, I, it, hopefully it'll come out sometime next year, but I'm, I'm, I'm cracking on it. So okay. um, but let's talk Good about luck. your book, though. 
Thank you. Um, yeah. It's called Transgender Workplace Diversity Policy Tools, Training Issues and Communication Strategies for HR and Legal Professionals. So, one, um, how, why did you decide to write that, and what is it you're hoping to, to, that your readers will gain from the book? Well, I wrote it after I was involved in a project that took about a year um, at Boeing to write a policy for that very, very large organization, um, which you know wants to make sure that they had something very comprehensive and very clear. And we interviewed probably about 50 people working that organization, uh, people in the union, people in uh, industrial security, people in uh, you know uh, line management and so on, and really wrote a very comprehensive policy. And I thought, well, you know, it's a shame that this should just kind of sit around and, you know, all this work that's been done. I mean, we just clarified everything so so neatly. Um, and as a matter of fact, Boeing won an award for that uh, policy from the Human Rights Campaign, which is a well-known LGBT advocacy organization. Um, and so I just basically, um, you know, took the policy and went through it line by line and said, well, what, so what resources do you need to make this work? What does it mean when we say this? You know, what was intended by that? And so on. I just kind of wrote this book with, you know, some examples from uh, different uh, uh, situations that I've had in my consulting work and my legal work and, um, you know, really wanted it to be a step-by-step guide for HR people and legal people so that when someone comes in and sits down and says, I have to tell you something, you know what step one is and you know what step two is and three and four as well. Mm. Wow, wonderful. Well, you make it sound so easy. I just wrote it and I just did this and I said that and here it is, it's done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I look forward to reading it. I haven't read it yet, but I will look forward to it. I think it's an important part to be informed on. Um, we're coming to the close of the show already, Dr. Weiss, and so I always like to give my guests a chance to be able to give some parting thoughts. And so perhaps maybe in, say, 60 seconds or so, what maybe final thoughts or words of wisdom do you have for us regarding our topic today? Yes, I would say this is a new area for everybody, and it is going to require uh, people to spend some time thinking and addressing and looking at how do we make sure that employees are treated right. It's not enough to simply say, well, we want to treat everyone right, and let's just be nice to everyone. This is an area that requires certain types of accommodations. Um, There are certain kinds of foreseeable problems that are going to come up, and um, it is important to understand that uh, coworkers and managers and HR people need training uh, so that they can understand what is appropriate and what is not appropriate in the workplace because people will say and do the most horrific things um, and then later say, well, I didn't realize, but when you look at what they did, it's like, well, how could you think that that's okay? That, of course, causes a huge problem for the risk management people. Um, it, it's good for attorneys on the other side, but I would much, much, much rather see that people are treated right in the first instances and that there's no need for my legal services. Mm. What a wonderful way to finish, Dr. Weiss. I really, really appreciate you being on the show. I was so glad you said yes when I reached out to you. So thank you for, for joining us today for this important topic. You're welcome. Thank you for asking. Yes, indeed. So if you want to learn more about Dr. Weiss and her work, please do visit her website. You can go to her law site, which is jtweisslaw.com. That's J-T-W-E-I-S-S-L-A-W.com. Or go to her blog, which is transworkplace.blogspot.com. You can find her book on Amazon as well. I recommend it. I went out there and found it myself. I'm looking forward to the read. A wonderful conversation with you, Dr. Weiss. Really appreciate you illuminating this important topic. Don't forget that work is one third third of our lives, so let's work on purpose. Have a great week.
We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Elise Cortez, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, find your life's purpose at work. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.